thank you for being here with us today. Welcome. How are you? Hi, Guy. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, really good. Thank you. Start of spring. It's lovely. Absolutely. Yes, yeah, lovely sunny day here actually today. I've got all the uh, the pressure washing done at the weekend, so I can see it all in uh, beautiful splendour today with the uh, the clear skies. Um, but no, Matt, lovely to uh, to have you here. Thanks very much for coming on to the to the show. Um, I guess by way of introduction, uh, Matt, you are a a data leader. Uh, you're an, an entrepreneur. Um, you've had a really interesting career journey to date. You know, you've taken some really interesting roles with. Uh, you know, the likes of Elsevier, uh, big blue chip companies as kind of head of data and analytics. Um, but you've also co-founded your own company as well and been the CTO of, uh, of HiveMap. Um, so really looking forward to today's episode and sort of hearing more about your, your journey and, and picking your brains today. Um, as for the, uh, the theme uh, that we're going to cover, we thought we'd tackle the biggie, uh, which is, uh, which is ChatGPT. Um, and I guess, yeah, not just ChatGPT, but you know, large language models in general, and, uh, you know, talk a little bit about the evolution of so-called AI. Um, and, um, and yeah, I mean, I can honestly say, you know, from my perspective, I don't think I can remember a time when a particular tool or product has had quite, you know, such a widespread recognition and such a swift adoption before uh, in, in tech at all, really. But, well, I guess not just in tech, but, but everywhere in the world. Um, so, um, yeah, I think every every episode of the podcast we've done every event we've done in, in some way shape and form is encompassed chat gpt so i'm really uh really interested to hear your thoughts on it on it today um but uh, before we delve into that and sort of talk about the uh that side of things it'd be lovely just to hear a little bit more about you uh you know your your kind of background and um and then yeah we can go from there so talk, talk to a little bit about you know who you are your background and i guess you know how you got into data and, and tech in the first place Okay. Okay. Great. Well, thank, thanks, Guy. Thanks for that lovely introduction. Uh, and uh, yeah, super excited to be talking about ChatGPT later. And uh, yeah, I, I think it's one of these 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 revolutions of yours that's up there with with the uh, the internet. These things, one of these things that will will change the fabric of society and the way we work. So yeah, happy to talk about that uh, in in a few minutes. But but a little bit a bit of background my, myself. So I've been. I've been working in data and AI in sort of some form or another uh, for about 20 years. So, you know, quite, quite a while. Uh, and uh, you know, most recently, I've, 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 as you said, I've built and led my own startup focusing on using AI to predict risks uh, on construction projects. Um, but prior to that, as you pointed out, I, I worked for a big blue chip Elsevier, uh, doing a lot of stuff around network analytics. So uh, taking uh, large quantities of, of uh, research literature, looking at who cites who, and building up these huge networks with literally tens of millions of nodes, uh, as in tens of millions of articles uh, and links between them, billions of links connect them all together. Uh, and a lot of what we were doing at Elsevier there was taking those networks and pulling out the structure embedded in those and using that to, to feed product intelligence or, or, or newsfeed content. Um, I spent sort of nine years uh, prior to that working in climate science, so uh, building sensor networks, uh, designing them from sort of board level up and uh, going out to lots of weird and uh, wonderful places all around the world to install these sensor networks, then ensure the data was brought back and, and was analyzed correctly uh, and, and um, statistical properties of that data could be, could be, uh, could be extracted for, for, for improving climate models. 
And uh, yes, my, my 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 initial training was in electronics engineering. So I was you know, very much very much a hardware monkey to get my career started, if you will. Good stuff. Good stuff. So talk us through then from the hardware side. What what took you into into data, I guess, in particular? What, what was that sort of segue for you? Yeah, yeah. so I mean, it was a kind of logical logical extension of all, all of the sensor design and development, and a, um, my my PhD was centered around uh, building a, a sensor for measuring wind turbulence in three dimensions from a from a from a balloon. Uh, and once you've built the instrument, and actually you're you're trying to analyze the data, and you've got this complex situation of the balloon that's moving in turbulence that you're trying to measure you've got this really complicated process you're trying to pull out the actual turbulence measurements from so for you to actually be able to generate any value from that you've really got to delve into the the, the algorithms uh, the machine learning uh, and the ai components that, that allow you to sort of pull out that 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 signal from the noise basically mm. so it was a it was a logical extension sort of step step away from the hardware and more into the sort of the sort of data side of things so as to actually generate the sort of final final product the final insights sure yeah yeah absolutely i guess whether it's hardware software or, or, or anything like say ultimately the data is what gives you the gives you the insights as to whether it's uh moving in the right direction i suppose isn't it and whether it's all working so yeah absolutely yeah makes sense as a logical progression um so um so yeah you know what what sort of initially attracted you to the world of technology because you know when I, when I see people that sort of get all the way to the all the way to that that sort of uh the holy shangri-la as a, a head of data or you know as a cto and um, people are always really interested to understand you know was that just a you know you a natural technician did you always kind of find that interesting or uh yeah, what was the sort of initial uh thought process to get into the world of tech yeah yeah and I, I guess it ties back to your question of how did you move into data from from sort of hardware sort of things but uh, as a kid I, I always liked making things you know there was there was a small cupboard uh actually it was the front lobby of the house from the Thailand there was a, a a space full of cardboard boxes that would be, be stored for 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 Matt to build things out of so I was always building like castles or cars or or some sort of crazy invention uh, out of cardboard boxes as, as a kid uh, and and being the fourth kid of four, there was always like a ton of Lego to play with. So I was I was always making things. And uh, being being the, the son of a, a financial bursa and, and, a, and, a, and, a, and a maths teacher meant that was, maths was always being thrown at me. You know, like kind of silly little maths problems in the car. You know, what happens if you got three apples and you give two apples to Bob and blah blah blah. Yeah. You know? So I was always having that sort of that sort of uh, that sort of existence of maths and making things. And uh, so when it came to going to university, it was, well, I'm going to, I'm going to go and be an engineer. Uh, and in the late 90s, as a, as a teenager, I'd started to learn to play the guitar. And I got a real fascination in, in guitars, guitar amplifiers, and guitar effects pedals. So it seemed obvious to go and do electronics engineering. And it's kind of interesting because now if you think back in the late 90s, you wanted to make something for a guitar. Yeah, you were going to have to pick up a soldering iron and actually solder something, get your head around all the electronics side of things. Now you probably just write some software for it, right? But but, but back in the late nineties, there's no way you could have got a computer to do the, the sort of things that, that that kids can now get computers to do. So you know the, the calling was very much towards electronics, electronic engineering. How can you make a you know a valve amplifier or a great widget to to, to add some effect on the guitar sort of sound? And uh, 
you know, from there, obviously, the world has evolved through hardware, through uh, through to actually building a lot of a lot of tech out of software. And we've already talked a little bit about the evolution from moving into more data analytics as well. But yeah, I, I think probably I was always going to end up building things in my life, and and the way society and the way tech has evolved means that I gravitate towards data and software, and here I am. There we go. Absolutely. Well, I always love a a little segue into technology from the world of guitars. I mean, that's probably the the, the, the coolest uh, yeah segue into technology I think I've ever heard. <laughs> um, but yeah, very, very rock and roll. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, we talking to a uh, yeah a man after my own heart because obviously I'm big into my guitars and I'm sure we can we can probably take a a whole other episode up on talking about that but uh, maybe not not for today look forward to that one um but um but no i think it's it's a really great point and um i mean you're dead right and i guess it sort of leads into a little bit what we're going to talk about today is the main topic but the speed at which technology and and sort of data and you know dare i say the word ai you know is, is sort of progressing at the moment is just yeah exponentially uh quickly even in the last sort of two three years it feels like it's sort of really coming on um but um what what are you now most passionate about in the world of of, of data you know from your career to date and sort of seeing how things have evolved what's um what's sort of the, the yeah where that sits for you now in terms of your passions yeah so i i, I, I still have a, a real love for graphs i, I talked to earlier about network social networks and those citation networks that, that we worked on uh, at Elsevier and I think networks are kind of uh, are fascinating you know most of the world we live in follows like a, a, a one-dimensional thread of you when you read a document you start at the top and you read down the bottom it's one-dimensional all the way right but the world doesn't work in one dimensions it, you know it, it works in in multiple dimensions you know in three-dimensional spaces it's obviously three dimensions but actually it goes beyond that and we think about all the different facets of things that are going on in sort of an n-dimensional sort of uh, activity space and graphs represent that sort of n-dimensional activity space uh, and in my mind once we can encapsulate the things we know into these sort of networks these sort of graph-like structures we build out these knowledge graphs that that to me will underpin the next step in in, in ai uh, and so as a consequence you know I, I am fascinated at looking at how graph deep learning is evolving mm, absolutely absolutely yeah i I, uh, I totally agree with that i mean just just from a a general understanding of of how we capture knowledge and apply that by way of you know call it intelligence or whatever you want um you know graph um yeah it seems like a very uh, exciting and kind of sensible way forward um and i guess that probably leads us on to a little bit let's, let's talk a little bit about chat gpt then as a as a tool and, and i think he quite rightly made the point earlier on you know, i often hear the word sort of watershed moment um when when people talk about chat gpt um but as we all know, it's not the only large language model out there. And, um, you know, obviously the, the, these things have been sort of being cooked up for a, a wee while, but it'd be good to break it down. I suppose it sounds like you've got a very good understanding of the, the different innate models being used and different algorithms used within, um, you know, tools like ChatGPT. So it'd be good to sort of break it down into the nuts and bolts of, you know, first and foremost, you know, what, what is a large language model um, and, you know, kind of, why do you feel that ChatGPT is is now, as I say, being, being dubbed this watershed moment um, for us all? 
Yeah. Okay. So uh, I, I think the, the, the first thing to say is, I mean, yeah, yeah, it's huge. Well, you know, it, it is game changing. What 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 has come to uh, out in the, the, the public discourse over the last few months. However, it started this whole revolution, if you will, probably started uh, arguably back end of 2018, but arguably even before that, back in 2013. And I, and I think if we want to get our heads around what a large language model is, we, we need to sort of take a bit of a step back and a look more generally as to what artificial intelligence is actually doing. And, you know, throughout, throughout all the complexity that, that it, AI seems to be, it's not really complex at all. It's just pattern recognition. It's just looking for repeated patterns that it can see throughout a load of data. And when I say that the current revolution can be brought, taken back to uh, 2013, we take it back to sort of, uh, some, some research that was done by uh, the, the guys at Google, where they were trying to predict the probability of different words co-occurring in, in the same sentences, right? And they managed to get to a point where uh, they could predict whether words would appear in the right sentence or not. And they were accurate, like, maybe sort of two thirds of the time, 66, roughly, that's sort of 66% of the time they're accurate. And yeah, that was a kind of, that was a kind of step forward on, on, the, on the, uh, the state of the art at the time, but in itself wasn't very revolutionary. What was revolutionary though, is the method they used to actually get there meant that they could create uh, a, a, or, or translate each word they were looking into, into a, a coordinate frame, uh, just like we look at three-dimensional space. And they could translate those words into a co coordinate set where those coordinates actually translated real meaning. And so the example that, that the Google researchers gave was that if you took the coordinate associated with the word man and subtracted that from the coordinate associated with the word king, and then added the coordinate associated with the word woman, you got to the word queen. So, you know, semantically what we're saying is king minus man plus woman is a queen and this this logically makes sense to, to us from what these words actually mean right and and so, so that was back in 2013 so this that was the revolutionary piece back then and uh, you know there's been various advances done on top of that whether you, you, if, you, if you take the, more of the sentence to add context to what that word means and and, and then use uh, 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 similar sort of algorithms to predict sequences from sequences. So for instance, how, how you can use that process to actually translate from English to French, or how you can use that process to take a long sequence of text and convert it to a short sequence of text, i.e. text summarization. You, you, could, you could build up these, 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 these models. And, and actually what, what's happened, and that's exactly what they've done in building out large language models. They've taken that whole process, thrown an awful lot of data at, at, at the, the algorithm, trained it for a number of days slash weeks, and you've got this brilliant representation of the semantic meaning of words. And that's essentially what a large language model is. Sure. Oh, poor, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it's, it's, a, it's a good point. And, um... I think, you know, it's it's just chat GPT, I think the phenomenon of it and how it's kind of broken onto the scene and why it's being dubbed this sort of watershed moment. I mean, obviously, it's, it isn't the first um, large language model that, that's come about, you know, it's not the first kind of comprehensive um, chatbot and, and, you know, OpenAI aren't the only business that, that have done it. But I think the real real differentiation of, you know, kind of the difference between what do we have, like there's Blenderbot from Meta and then 
Tay from Microsoft and, and sort of other other chatbots obviously existed before, which didn't quite have the same level of, of adoption. But I think the the key differentiation that I can discern it with you know with what OpenAI have done is that it's actually publicly available. This is the first time that they've made a public tool. Um, you know, I think that's why it's kind of blowing people's mind because you can actually engage with it and interact with it. And for the first time as average Joe blogs, you know, you kind of got access to this kind of um, you know, AI tool, so to speak. Um, so it's an interesting model, obviously, that, that OpenAI have, have gone with. Um, and yeah, I totally, I totally agree with you. You know, ultimately, it's it's not a uniquely capable form of of intelligence it's essentially just pattern recognition of you know um of, of data that's being being fed to it and as such you know there will always be uh you know limitations for for this type of um tool you know this type of sort of um algorithm i guess um so what do you foresee as you know as incredible as it is and as kind of you know mind bending sometimes with some of the, the insights it sort of comes out with what do you perceive as some of the limitations of you know like a chat gpt yeah yeah so i mean going back to this whole pattern recognition thing for it to be a pattern there's got to be something that's occurring with a trend right so it's never going to come out with some outlier because the outlier is not the pattern the trend is the pattern so what an AI is going to do, it's going to converge to the mean. Uh, and so it's always going to produce the average. It's going to produce the kind of the, the, the run of the mill, the expected outcome. Uh, and so therefore, its limitation is actually in spotting the unlikely yet correct outcome. Uh, so, you know, if there's no if, there's, if, if, if there is no trend, but it actually could potentially be an answer to a particular problem, it's not going to spot that because it's not found that as the 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 most likely probable uh, outcome of a particular uh, question that's been thrown at it. I see, I see. And what what do you foresee? How do we overcome that? I guess. And how do we how do we take the sort of or understand the limitations that exist now and and actually work with that to evolve it into yeah more of a yeah sentient intelligence. So so so, <laughs> um, so, so I, I guess two answers, right? A lot of people will be saying, we just need to throw more data at it. Surely it's just going to get better over more time as we throw more and more data at it. But you, you've probably heard recently that I, I think Sam Altman at OpenAI said that they weren't going to uh, put more data in it. I think we probably, we can conclude that actually we've reached a saturation point where, yeah, you might throw a bit more data at it and you might get 10% improvement, but you're not going to get the, the, the revolutional step change that we've seen over the last uh, few years using, using uh, these algorithms. And, and, and the reason for that is we've already, already managed to eke out the, the sort of the, the trends in the data. Uh, and you could say, if you just throw more data at it, what you're doing is giving more context and you can give it more context to break down different scenarios to sort of get more understanding under those different contexts but at some point you run out of the volume of data to actually formulate a decent trend prediction right so it, it, at some point that that doesn't that doesn't actually work so to answer your question what do i what do i actually think is the solution to that well this is coming back to why i'm excited about knowledge graphs uh, because in, in in my mind you can't keep throwing loads of data out this problem unless you've got a framework to say actually i don't need to explore every possible avenue I just need to explore the, the, the realistic avenues based on my understanding of the problem. Mm -hmm. It's a bit like if you were to throw a ball up in the air, 
you're not looking left and right to see if the ball is going to come and hit you in the face. You're looking up because you know gravity is at play and it's going to come straight back down. You have a knowledge graph in your head that yeah. you've built from your experience of the world that tells you that ball is going to come down, not left or right. Mm. So don't bother exploring left or right because it's not coming from there. Yeah. And, and similarly, we can build that sort of that knowledge representation. And to some extent, it is built in, but it's not explicit in, in, in models like ChatGPT. Uh, if we can explicitly define what these, these, these knowledge uh, constraints are, we can make better sense of the data that we are throwing at it. Interesting, interesting. So do you feel then that the the kind of big step forward that we're, you know, we're all kind of very excited about or, or either dreading in, in equal measure of, of getting some form of AGI, you know, some kind of like sentient intelligence. Do you feel the model actually best to achieve that is actually going to be pursuing, um, you know, knowledge, um, graphs? Uh, I, I do. Uh, and you know, this, this, the, the, the AGI sort of excitement slash fear, uh, it's, a, it's a, point of uh, debate amongst experts uh, my personal view is that we are decades uh, away from it because we don't have yet the machinery to connect these different pieces together so we've been talking about large language models we could also talk about a lot of the uh, great work that's been going on in computer vision we could talk about some of the great work in terms of the the, the, the boston dynamics sort of moving robots that we've that we've, that we've seen uh, uh, heavily publicized we could talk about self-driving cars but they're all brilliant advances but in isolated spaces there's no uh, overarching connecting piece that connects all these different things together so as it currently stands, we're not going to be able to suddenly step towards an AGI because they're all isolated language or isolated vision or isolated um, motion. We haven't got that sort of overarching technology that brings all this stuff together. So that's that's why I think we're dec away, decades away from an AGI. Mm. Potentially, knowledge graphs might provide that framework, but we're still some time away from being able to get to that point where um, knowledge graphs can be leveraged in such a way and we can move towards an AGI, and that's why I think we're decades away. Yeah, fair enough. Do you know, it's, it's still quite surreal to think, though, Matt, that we're only, you know, you think about the, the, the timeline of man and, and actually, you know, the exponential leaps forward that we've all seen in the last few years. You know, to sit here and say that we're actually only decades away from, you know, some form of AGI, it's pretty scary, isn't it, in itself? And it's, yeah, I say exciting and scary in equal measure because, you know, it, a few decades in, in the timeline of man is is literally a, a blink of an eye and uh you know and, and this is why i'm just i'm genuinely impressed by by tools you know like the ai tools and how they've advanced because obviously the level of computational power that we have now and and the, like i say the the output that we can get from these models is just unbelievably crazy but if we can if we can work out a way like say to tie those together and and you know build in the context i guess um then that's when it's going to become yeah particularly exciting and say only a few decades away you know it's, that's 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 nothing really is it um yeah no definitely definitely and, and, and you know if you, if you look at where we've come with the silicon chip over a, a, a over a handful of decades right uh you know that has our world uh, as as our parents have understood it right so yeah absolutely things are moving at an alarming rate in decades is you know it's it's basically tomorrow mm. but the, the the bigger range of risks that I think artificial artificial intelligence um, uh, poses uh, across that bigger range of risks, 
AGI is probably the least of our concerns. We probably ought to be thinking about some other things that are more immediate uh, and will have impact uh, to, to, to us sooner. Uh, we shouldn't obviously ignore the, the, the AGI future. We should be planning for that and thinking about how we, how we, how we maintain, how we, how we create a controlled state uh, and how we, can create a, a, how we can create a safe sort of society. <laughs> so how we can create a safe sort of society. Um, but there are bigger, bigger, more immediate problems to deal with. You've piqued my interest. Go on. So, I mean, the, the obvious point here is that you know, we, uh, we've talked about um, AI being a convergence to the mean. We've, we've talked about AI's ability to generate something that's very average, but will work. So as a consequence, if you're in a role doing something that is valuable, but average, and, and you're, you're just re repeatedly producing the same sort of material, the same sort of thing day in, day out, chances are AI is going to take over your work. Uh, and, and we've seen that from, from all different walks, walks of life, from people writing content through something like, like a large language model to, to software engineers writing code. So you know, it's going to hit a lot of different uh, areas of society. And as a consequence of that, you, as humans, we need to be pushing our edge ourselves to, towards that sort of that top of the class, that A star level of performance, because that's what AI cannot do. Mm. And we need to be able to push ourselves to that thing that's connecting different contexts together, because also AI cannot do that. Mm. So we, we, we have a challenge as to how do we make people aware that they've got to push that A star, they've got to be able to do that thing that AI cannot do. And for that, they need to understand what the AI cannot do. And for those people that are going to be 100% displaced by, by this sort of technology, how do we help them learn new technologies and new skills so, so that, they are, that they're still capable of, of earning money in a, in, in a, capitalist, in a capitalist society? Mm, yeah. We have a huge problem with the displacement of, of, of employees, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's... Uh... It, it is it, it, certainly the people I've spoken to, I guess, that sit outside of tech when you have the conversation with them about, you know, I, I've definitely had that that light bulb moment with a few people I've spoken to them. They, they've not really heard of ChatGPT necessarily and it explains them what it is. And then you give them a demo and they say you can kind of almost see the look of like, you know, terror in their eyes about actually what's that going to mean for you know, certainly in industries like the legal sector and things like that, you know, for what is essentially in, in my opinion, an industry that needed a lot of disruption um, anyway. But uh, in terms of actually what it means and what it's capable of doing, you know, it, it is absolutely going to totally turn it on its head. Uh, and these are obviously very bright, intelligent people we're talking about here in terms of solicitors and, and lawyers and, and people that are probably actually almost the, the kind of most immediate threat to their to their industry so yeah i totally um i totally agree with you that um you know it's about how do we engage with it and how do we utilize it you know from here um one of the things actually i'm i'm kind of always very reassured of with recruitment because it's is as as an industry it's definitely been well let's face it recruitment's got a bit of a stigma you know people um often you know, think that all recruiters will sell their grandma down the river to kind of get the, the next deal. And obviously, I, I enjoy bucking the trend and, you know, sort of not necessarily 
being that kind of recruiter, but obviously try and conduct myself with a little bit more ethics and, and morals and that kind of thing. But but fundamentally, you know, people have been trying to replace recruitment with a, a piece of software for a good long while. And I'm sure a lot of people will be very happy if, if that does happen. But I am kind of reassured sort of deep down, you know, there's certain industries out there, and I do think recruitment is possibly one of those, that it, it is really at its core innately about human nature it's it's a very very difficult thing to fully replicate with um ai and you know i'm sure we'll talk about this in a moment but we definitely use it we use it a lot you know we found a number of different really interesting use cases where um chat gpt has kind of really accentuated and, and sort of augmented our service um but I, I do believe it's going to be very difficult to fully replace it um because ultimately when a client is is working with us you know, what they're paying for at the end of the day is, is our opinion. You know, like when we're sat opposite somebody having a coffee or having a beer, you know, do we understand the culture of that company? Do we understand the personality of that individual? And, you know, we're making a judgment call on whether we feel somebody, you know, gut, gut feel really is going to be a good fit. Of course, they've got to be able to do the job. Of course, they've got to have the right technical skills. But at its core, fundamentally, it's you know, people are paying for our opinion on on that particular person. And like you said, we may be decades away, but it does feel like we're going to be a long, long way away before we can actually get that level of kind of um, both objective and subjective uh, evaluation, you know, sort of in equal measure. So I hope that a lot of other people sort of look at it in a way that, you know, they sort of think, right, well, how can I upskill? How can I sort of use these tools in a certain way to you know, continue to solve problems with the skill sets that I have, because let's face it, that's what business is at the end of the day, isn't it? It's like working out what problems need to be solved and, and working out how you can solve them. Um, but what do you what do you feel for the world of you know engineers? Because that must also be quite a scary place to be if you're a you're a software engineer now who's spent you know the last fifteen years learning all of the different syntax for different languages and stuff, and and you know now all of a sudden. Chat GPT comes along and writes the most clean, sort of perfect code, you know, instantaneously. What do you fear that it kind of means for? Yeah, yeah. So I, I think, yeah, I think, I think you hit the nail on the head there, actually, in in, in terms of uh, recruitment and actually that human component. And I, I, I think you you can often consider the, the value being in in the sort of the 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 uh, the short tail, if you will. So it's in it's in the, it's easy for an AI to serve a large quantity of people, but it's very hard for an AI to serve that kind of high value for, for specific individuals. Uh, and, and in the case of recruitment, where you're trying to look for a specific role for a specific person, that's that's kind of that short tail sort of, uh, 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 sort of thinking. And so you, do, you don't have that long trend to go and play with. You're looking for that nuance. Right? And, and, and that's where, where I think the real value comes in. So if, if you are a soft, software engineer uh if you're writing sort of some sort of run-of-the-mill sort of code that's kind of just a bit bit tedious to write anyway frankly there's gonna be enough examples on the internet for a for, for a large language model to generate that code for you where where the value comes in is where you're doing something kind of a little bit clever and, and uh, maybe that thing that's a little bit clever will be tied to the product application or the or or, or, the, or a particular use case that you have in mind so my advice to software engineers would be get close to product, get close to your users, understand what it is that, they, that, you, that you can do to, to generate a real love for your product and, and, and make sure you code towards that. 
uh, and, and the actual process of actually writing code, you know, let, let the AI do it. It's going to do it quicker than you, but it's never going to be able to generate that sort of short tail value. Yeah. 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 Totally agree. Um, and, um, I think it will be a really interesting, uh, sort of journey or thing, thing to keep close eyes on, on, on kind of which industries out there, you know, do ultimately, unfortunately fall by the wayside because of, of, you know, the evolution in, in AI, but those like say that also kind of really rise to the challenge of how they can actually use it to, you know, evolve their service and accentuate things in, in a, in a different way. And so, yeah, it's a definitely very fluid, fluid time and exciting time for, for all of us. Um, but um, other than the kind of immediate threat of, you know, uh, unfortunately, certain redundancies being made in certain posts, what, what other sort of downsides do you see to the evolution of, of AI in general? It doesn't necessarily have to be kind of, you know, large language models, um, but, you know, other areas of, of AI, such as, you know, deep fakes, um, the, these kind of areas, you know, what, what do you kind of perceive as the some of the downsides there? Yeah, so I, I guess, uh, I mean, relatively recent news of, of Jeffrey Hinton leaving Google, actually, and, and reading some of his uh, tweets uh, with regards to his reasons for departure. I, I share a lot of his concerns around uh, um, it being used, uh, AI being used by uh, bad actors around the world, being used uh, for disinformation, being used by militaries uh, against uh, sort of our militaries, if you will, uh, yeah, it's 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 a cause for concern, um, and and there's a good parallel I think here between uh, um, the, the the scientists developed AI and the scientists developed the atomic bomb. I mean, it is revolutionary from a kind of uh, warfare perspective. Um, but yeah, so so Jeffrey Hinton's um, sort of resignation is is kind of really raised some some really really interesting points around uh, this technology being used uh, by bad actors for for disinformation purposes. Uh, and of course, the concern around um, uh, around data bias as well, and the fact that AI is going to reflect all those biases that we, we, we have in our data. But I, I had a, a week ago, I had a bit of a sort of penny drop moment for me uh, with regards to uh, Web3 uh, and, and, and NFTs. And, and I wonder a little bit whether the world of disinformation and AI could be, if you will, the, the, the the iPhone to to uh, 3G um, uh, telephony, and what I mean by that is kind of 3G telephony was sold for ages as being like, oh, it's going to be ground this, this new future. But there wasn't really any technology that could really leverage the, the bandwidth that 3G gave. And then the iPhone came along, and suddenly it was like, oh wow, we can watch things on 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 this little screen in our in our pockets. And suddenly that revolutionised that the the value in that in, in that 3G telephony. Now, in, in the same way, I, I think you know, NFTs and, and, and blockchain have been around for ages. Have been obviously been used for um, uh, cryptocurrencies, and there's been a lot of talk for a while as to how you can embed uh, uh, smart contracts on the blockchain. Uh, and NFTs have been obviously used to create a sense of ownership of, 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 of digital art. But but actually, I really think there's a lot of power in actually using NFTs and blockchains to create a sort of uh, a provenance such that actually if you see a picture or you see a bit of text, you can actually use the NFT and the blockchain to trace it back to, oh, Guy Bevington wrote this or, or, or Matt Hobby took this picture. And actually you can create that provenance uh, and, and that's gonna be hugely important. It doesn't solve the disinformation problem, 
but it does give you a sense of I can have faith in this thing I'm looking at through the mm. NFT and blockchain process. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There's obviously lots of different ways of uh, of looking at it, isn't there? And and yeah, I totally agree with you. Disinformation. When I when I first saw a um, a really convincing deep fake video, I was like shaken to the core about this. This is seriously dangerous and you know because obviously disinformation you've only got to go onto to facebook to to kind of see it quite readily you know, occurring in all of our lives and thankfully we're getting a little bit better in terms of developing some of the kind of natural filters around disinformation but but you know when you think about the power essentially is in controlling the masses and you know for a lot of people out there in the world that are, are being subject to you know this kind of uh, spread of disinformation you know are they are they necessarily going to be able to discern between you know does it have the right sort of uh you know provenance like say for is it a genuine message or not and, and fortunately you know majority of people probably out there in the world won't have access to that so obviously there is a real kind of uh concern and risk there i guess about how these processes can be um used in a very uh threatening way but i also agree with you that there's you know and i do think blockchain kind of like the whole decentralization element of things and being able to you know track things back i think yeah i do think it's the kind of the future and and the way forward and and i guess as humans there's always been threats to you know our existence there's always been tools that could either be used in a very positive or a very negative way and we've just got to make sure that the the goodies uh you know essentially outweigh the or outweigh the baddies and we sort of work out a way to you know solve the disinformation problem as best we can but like i said it, it is exciting to think about things like uh you know whole blockchain and and nfts and things like that are great examples of actually yeah like that could be a really um a sensible way of uh of doing that so uh so yeah it's interesting times what are your thoughts on the on the recent you know talking about the ethical side of things um and like you say the, the, the you know no plans to kind of continue to train the model what are your thoughts on this sort of six month uh moratorium that OpenAI have um have called on on sort of continuing to tra train chat gpt4 after um after this yeah i'm sorry to say i think it's incredibly naive uh you know it, let's imagine uh you i and all of our friends said let's stop doing research into ai there's a lot of bad actors out there in the world that are, are not going to stop uh engaging in research in ai so if we were to have a moratorium we would just be left behind so it, it's 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 a naive approach um the point that the sort of meta point they're making is look, look let's let's put some checks and balances in let's let's start having a public discourse on this absolutely 100% agree and you know part of this podcast or this podcast is part of that that discourse right let's let's start engaging as a society around this technology and and, and the risks and dangers but to, but to simply just say let's down tools and do nothing more on it until we we've got a handle that's just daft and naive and sorry <laughs> I agree. I agree. I, I definitely agree. I think it feels like it's it's come from a purely emotional place of, you know, probably wanting to get ahead of the curve and, you know, before uh, before too many people kind of revolt, I guess, with this thing that's not not I think I think it probably boils down to the fact that it's this thing that not many people necessarily have understood and then they've come across and seen it and, and it's kind of just sent a lot of ripples throughout the world in in many different ways, doesn't it? So I kind of see it as a bit of a temporary hiatus that is more a precautionary measure than anything else, but uh, I do also agree with you that yeah, it does seem quite quite naive to, you know, it's not really going to solve much of a you know, of an ongoing problem, is it? Um, 
so uh, yeah so what what i guess in a nutshell to kind of um you know wrap things up from where we are now you know to to get to that next watershed moment from this point onwards what do you think is gonna is gonna drive the next revolution let's say in the world of ai Yeah, so I, I, I still hold a hold a, uh, a flame for the sort of semantic web thinking, which is a, you know something that was being uh, peddled around for for well, decades now by by the likes of Sir Tim Berners Lee, uh, uh, and you know creating this sort of representation of the world around us and, and and the facts within it and how those those facts evolve with each other to build up some sort of public knowledge graph uh, that can be used for for um, training uh, other AIs, I, I, I think is going to be the, the work that creates that sort of next step change. Mm. Interesting. Absolutely. So you think it's sort of a public, a public knowledge graph insofar as a similar kind of model to a chat GPT that's readily accessible to the, the public, but um, one that is created by a single entity or one that's sort of uh, contributed to by by multiple different um, entities. Yeah, I, I, I can't see how it would come to be uh, some sort of purely publicly owned model. I mean, in the same way that I think OpenAI open started out as being a kind of, let's create open AI models for everyone to use. But, but ultimately they, they've sort of come up again to kind of how do you fund that sort of open model and, and Microsoft obviously now have a big stake in it and as a consequence open AI are not as open as they once were right <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, so yeah I, I struggle to see how we're, 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 we're going to create like a purely um, uh, publicly owned uh, knowledge graph but it, but I, I, I do see as having a number of uh, reliable knowledge sources in the same way we rely on things like the bbc as being a kind of uh, a, a, um, a good source of relatively unbiased uh, 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 uh data um yeah so I, I see i see as having another a number of institutions that build their reputation on the fact that they are objective uh mm. and objective through the processing of the the, the, the data that they that they have access to yeah 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 just listening to you speak then i think yeah something occurred to me i think there's probably no better more more kind of uh obvious uh application of of branding than in the world of ai moving forward you know if you're a business now that is obviously building any tool specifically related to branding get, get, get uh, sorry related to ai getting your your branding kind of totally crystal clear and you know your messaging kind of on point um from a from an ethical standpoint and a value standpoint and a mission standpoint i guess is going to be absolutely vital for a lot of companies whether it's to whether they're going to succeed or not because because fundamentally like you say it just boils down to trust doesn't it you, you do you do feel that when you're reading an article from the bbc there there is an element you know okay i haven't necessarily always been cleaner than white than white but um you know there is that element of trust there and underlying layer of trust that you, you kind of do take that information on board. Um, and I think that's the, the a little bit within the world of AI at the moment, it feels a little bit like the wild west of everybody sort of, uh, you know, trying to rush to the hills to, to go and claim the, the chunk of gold. But it's like, uh, you know, 
who actually trusts what at the moment. And I think that's, um, that's going to be a big problem for a lot of companies to solve moving forward. Yeah, yeah, ab absolutely. And, and the, the more uh, we can use technology to support that trust network, uh, the, the, the better as far as I see. Absolutely, absolutely. Okay, super. Well, Matt, really enjoyed the conversation. I think you've, um, you've definitely helped add a lot of clarity to where we are at the moment and kind of dispelled a few myths, but also shared, I think, some really interesting insights about where we're, we're headed. And, and I definitely agree with you. You know, it's a very exciting space. I'm, I'm also very keen to understand how knowledge graphs will continue to evolve and, and sort of start linking together. And, um, you know, a lot of these uh, very powerful models that we, we have in play today. Um, and uh, yeah, I guess let's sort of watch watch this space. But I like to end all podcasts, as you may know by now, with with asking um, all guests a closing question of as a, a technologist, as a leader, um, what would you say is the the one best piece of advice that you've ever received? Uh, that I've ever received uh, probably comes down to uh, focus on your users, focus on your products, focus on a North Star metric. So uh, yeah, a lot of the stuff that's taught out of YC uh, startup school, but you, you really, really, really build that understanding of what makes your user happy uh, and find a metric that reflects that and go after that 110 percent nice very a very uh, you can tell that came from a data a data leader because a lot of people will talk about find out what makes your uh, <laughs> what makes your user happy absolutely but then the, the point you had of uh, being able to find a metric to measure it that's the that's the key thing <laughs> cool yeah if, if you can't measure it how do you know you're delivering it so yeah absolutely <laughs> absolutely right Awesome. Well, look, nothing else remains but for me to so say thank you very much for coming on. Really enjoyed the uh, the chat, and uh, yeah, let's let's get together again and uh, record another one in future. I guess once the next the next watershed moment comes along, which probably won't be too long, um, and dare I say we can probably throw a little bit in there about our uh, our guitars as well. So uh, yeah, thanks for coming on, Matt. Lovely to speak to you, and uh, yeah, let's uh, let's catch up again very soon. Pleasure. Thanks for having me, guy. Cheers.